If you have your Bibles with you, please open them to Joshua chapter 2. And today we're going to be going over four chapters from Joshua 2 through Joshua 5. And so we will be flipping quite a bit through there. So have your Bibles out and ready to go. And we talked last week about the major change that happened in Israel, that Moses was dead. And this meant a change in leadership for the nation of Israel. And in that first chapter, we had God commending to Joshua privately that he would be with him always. Anytime there's a change in leadership, if you look in the corporate world or, frankly, even in church settings, oftentimes new leaders who come in want to make it very clear that they are now the leader. They want to put their stamp and their imprint on the business or on the nation or on the church. And so they come in and they try to make changes or they try to do something to show that they are actually the one in charge now, that they're not just playing off of the guy who came before them or the gal. One of the best Examples of this in Scripture comes actually from 1 Kings 12 and Rehoboam, who takes over for Solomon. And as Rehoboam is going to be made king, the nation comes to him and says, Listen, your dad put very heavy burdens upon us and put great yokes on our backs, and we are pleading with you to take those off of us. And again, if if we suppose that Solomon wrote Ecclesiastes, all those building projects that he says he underdid, he didn't underdo those with his own hands, okay? He had people working for him to do those. And maybe that is what they're talking about, saying not only the building of the temple, but these other plans that Solomon had, they were taxing on us economically. They were taxing on us physically. They were taxing on us. Please back off of those. Rehoboam goes to the elders, and the elders of the nation say, listen, you will win this people over if you give them what they want here. Back off on this. You will, you will make them your servants forever if you serve them today. In other words, they basically respond, you can get more flies with honey than with vinegar. Whether or not Rehoboam even considered that, we don't know. Very quickly, he turns from the elders to the men whom he grew up with his pals, his bros, and they say, did they really say to you that they have heavy burdens and yokes? And again, in one of my favorite put-down lines in all of Scripture, I would like to hear an NBA player say this someday when they're talking trash, my, you need to say to them, my little finger is bigger than my father's thigh. You think that my father put burdens on you. I will put heavier burdens on you. You think he disciplined you with whips. I will discipline you with scorpions. And of course, Rehoboam goes for the uber-masculine, I'm going to make my impact on these people approach and soundly divides the kingdom, just as was prophesied to Solomon. People often do this to their own detriment. One wonders if Joshua had any ideas as to whether or not he was going to be able to put his lasting imprint, whether people thought that he was just going to be sort of a sidekick to what Moses did or not. But fortunately for Joshua, he doesn't have to worry about that because the imprint of his leadership is not going to have to be made by him, but it will be made by God. God will demonstrate that he is working through Joshua. But it's not just for Joshua's sake either because Moses wasn't just a leader that worked through God. Moses also kept the people close to God and God close to the people. 
I have no doubt in my mind that there was a real concern, not only whether Joshua was actually the leader of the people, but also if Moses' death meant for the people that God would still be with them. Will God be with us under Joshua just like he was under Moses? Was there something special about Moses that kept God somehow closer to us and more intimate to us? In these four chapters, then, in these four chapters, we have proof from God that not only will God be with Joshua the same way that he was with Moses, but God will still be with his people. He will always be their God, and they will always be his people. The first proof we have is the proof of the spies. You don't have to think too hard to go back to Numbers 13 and 14 to recount the fact that spies have been sent into the land before. Moses sent 12 spies, one from each tribe, up into the land from Kadesh Barnea. So they've come out of the Red Sea. They've encamped in front of Mount Sinai for a certain amount of time. And then they went north, directly north in the Arabian Peninsula and landed just south of the Promised Land. And from that southern point, Kadesh Barnea, there were sent into the land 12 spies. And these spies looked at the land, they spied it out, they spied out the people, and they came back with a report. And that report was bifurcated. It was distinct in two ways. On the one hand, they responded that God was indeed telling us the truth. When he said that this was a land flowing with milk and honey, they came back glowing with a report that the produce of the land, the fruit of the land, is indeed everything that God said it was. It is plentiful, and it is ripe, and it is good. They also came back and said, but the cities are heavily fortified. The men there are men of skill in war, and the Anakim are there, men great and mighty. The people came back and said, understandably so, we can't take this land. They were slaves. They were skilled at making bricks, not yielding swords, wielding swords. Neither were they skilled at yielding them. They were skilled in no way, shape, or form with swords. And so they said, we can't take the land. Never mind the fact that God had just led them out of Egypt and destroyed the entire Egyptian army without them lifting a finger. They said, we can't do it. And their hearts, as Deuteronomy 128 points out, melted at the report of the spies coming back. For 40 years after that, God made them travel in the wilderness because they refused to listen to his voice. I wonder if it was with some trepidation then that Joshua sends two spies into the land, specifically to spy out Jericho. The spies go in easily enough. They look around and they eventually make their way to a prostitute's house to be hidden. Rahab hides them. She sends the envoy from the city out another way and gives them a wild goose chase to go after. Meanwhile, the spies are upstairs on her roof being hidden. We'll pick up the story then in verse 8. Joshua chapter 2, verse 8. Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to them, I know the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt. And what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted. And there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. 
Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house. And give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them, and deliver our lives from death. This is a much different response than the response from the spies in the first place. In the first instance, when the spies went up, they came back with a report that they couldn't take the land. And as Deuteronomy and other places respond, the hearts of the people melted. They didn't say, we can take the land because God is with us, but they looked at the impossibility that was before them and their hearts melted. It's such a beautiful metaphor. They lacked bravery. They lacked courage. They lacked stamina. They lacked strength to do what it was that the Lord was calling them to do. But here... Here, it's no longer the people of Israel whose hearts melt, but rather it is the people of Canaan. They have seen what the Lord has done. They have heard the word of them going through the Red Sea, and they have witnessed with their own eyes across the Jordan, Israel defeating the two kings of the Amorites. They know, they know that God is coming for them, and they quake and they are fearful. No longer do the hearts of the Israelites melt, but the hearts of the Canaanites are melting. What is more... What was a detriment to the faith of the Israelites, not only did their hearts melt, but they didn't believe in God. When the response came back from those people, that man, there's mighty fortifications and difficulties every way you turn, they didn't believe that God could actually do what he wanted them to do. But now it is a Canaanite who sees the greatness of God. Listen to that confession. Your God, he is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. Not only is God working so mightily that his people have faith, but he is working so mightily that even the nations are responding in faith to what he is doing. Even greater than that, the encouragement of the people before they were discouraged to the point where they were unwilling to even go into the land. And in verse 24, listen to the report of the spies back to Joshua. Truly, the Lord has given all the land into our hands. And also all the inhabitants of the land melt away because of us. They go back to Joshua and instead of giving him this report that says we can't do it, they say, this is going to be easy. God is with us. He is working powerfully among us. The sending of the spies in is proof to the people. It is proof to Joshua that God is actually working. Even now, before they take the land, God has been working in the hearts of his enemies to give them over to the hands of the Israelites. It is proof that God is with his people, and it's proof that God is with Joshua. The second proof comes in chapter 3, and it is the proof of the water. Let us begin reading in verse 7. The Lord said to Joshua, Today I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel, so that they may know that, as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. And as for you, command the priests who bear the Ark of the Covenant, when you come to the brink of the waters of the Jordan, you shall stand still in the Jordan. And Joshua said to the people of Israel, Come here and listen to the words of the Lord your God. And Joshua said, Here is how you shall know the living God is among you. 
And that he will without fail drive out before you the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, and the Jebusites. Behold, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth is passing before you into the Jordan. Now therefore, take twelve men from the tribes of Israel, from each tribe a man. And when the soles of the feet of the priests bearing the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, shall rest in the waters of the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan shall be cut off from flowing. The waters coming down from above shall stand in one heap. It is impossible to listen to that miracle, to listen to how God even initiates the miracle, even how he addresses Joshua at the beginning, just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you, and not think of the Red Sea. Of course, the Red Sea was quite a different phenomenon. There's no doubting that the Red Sea miracle trumps this in almost every way, shape, and form. It is just incomparable. Not only is the Red Sea a vastly larger body of water, but even in all of the circumstances that surrounded them going into the Red Sea, surrounded them being rescued through the Red Sea, were all different. There was tremendous drama that was going on at the time of the Red Sea. The people were brought out of Egypt, with tremendous miracles, by the way. God was showing not only his power over nature, but his power in dividing up his people who dwelt in the land of Goshen versus the Egyptians. He brought darkness on the land and boils on the cattle. He brought livestock down and he brought disaster upon them in terms of gnats and flies and all of these things. He brought upon all of the people of Egypt and many of them he made miss his own people. And yet still, when he brought them south, the people wondered out loud, did God bring us all this way? Did God do all of this simply to destroy us in the desert? Because the people who had let them go, not only had let them go, but encouraged them to leave, gave them gold on their way out, now turned and followed at their heels. And Egypt was closing down upon them. And now they were in a bad spot because the wall of water was behind them. The Egyptian army was in front of them and they were cut off. There was nowhere to go. Would God be faithful to his people? Would God destroy the people's enemies? Would God deliver them miraculously somehow? And indeed he does by opening up the waters, allowing the people to, draw, to, to walk through as on dry ground. A wall of water, Exodus says on either side. And the people walk through, eventually allowing the people of Egypt to come through and crashing down on them. It is an incredibly dramatic scene in which God shows not only is he faithful to his people, he demolishes his people's enemies. He is good to his people always. He is for them and not against them. All of that, every single bit, is lacking with the crossing of the Jordan. You could even say that the breaking of the water and the crossing through it was almost a necessity. God wanted it to be that way, yes, but it was a necessity that they do that. There was no other escape. There was absolutely nothing about the crossing of the Jordan in this fashion that was necessary. The people easily could have gone north above the Sea of Galilee and attacked the rest of Canaan from the north, just like the Amorites and the Ammonites would do time and time and time again to the people of Israel much later. They could have gone south below the Dead Sea, just as they had done previously to Kadesh Barnea and attack the land from the south. There was no need for God to lead them to the Jordan so that they would cross over the Jordan. There was no enemy pressing them. As a matter of fact, so peaceful was it that Joshua had to go to the Reubenites and the Gadites and the half-tribe of Manasseh and say, remember guys, you have to come over. 
The temptation is to settle down where you are, but that is a temptation that you need to fight. There is no necessary reason to cross the Jordan here, to cross the Jordan at the time that they were doing it. And for all of those reasons, it's all the more important that God makes them do it. God doesn't need to. The whole miracle is there. He says it at the very beginning. The whole miracle is there so that you will know that I am with you. It is not to rescue you. It's not to provide something that you need. It is to go above and beyond what I need to do. I will graciously and gratuitously show you how much I am for you by doing a miracle that no other God could even possibly think of doing. I will demonstrate with the fullness of every power that I have that I am with you by stopping up the Jordan and allowing you to cross. It is the fact that it is a lesser miracle, that it is unneeded, that makes it all the more important. Notice how the passage ends. The priests, in verse 17, bearing the ark of the covenant of the Lord, stood firmly on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan, and all Israel was passing over on dry ground until all the nation finished passing over the Jordan. That on dry ground is, again, repetition from the crossing of the Red Sea. Just as they crossed the Red Sea, so they cross now. God is showing them as forcefully as he can. I am with Joshua, and I am with you. The third proof. The proof of the memorial. In chapter 4, let us begin reading in verse 4. Joshua called the twelve men from the people of Israel, whom Joshua, <clears throat> whom he had appointed, a man from each tribe. And Joshua said to them, Pass on before the ark of the Lord your God into the midst of the Jordan, and take up each of you a stone on his shoulder, according to the number of tribes of the people of Israel, that this may be a sign among you. When your children ask in the time to come, What do those stones mean to you? Then you shall tell them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord. When it is passed over the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. So these stones shall be to the people of Israel a memorial forever. Memorials are important. We often keep memorials so that we don't forget. For those who are there, it's almost impossible to forget. I remember where I was September 11, 2001. Remember many of the incidents of that day. It was such an odd day, not to mention the disaster that happened, the confusion that reigned on that day. It's very hard for anyone who was an adult at that time to not forget where they are or to not remember where they were. For many of you, it would have been like that with the shuttle landing on the moon. For many of you, it would have been like that for the assassination of JFK. There are a number of incidents that happen in life, both good and bad, that you simply don't forget. So the memorials are there not so much for those people. The memorials are there for others so that they don't forget, so that they always remember, that they always have it in mind. When I was thinking through this, I was reminded of a story that I heard from a friend of mine. He was a seminary leader down in um, Brazil, where I got to teach, and uh, he was showing me around Santos, which is right on the coast of Brazil, and uh, he took me down to the main beach there at Santos, which is huge. It's maybe 60 or 70 yards long, um, not, not along the seashore, but back from the seashore, just a tremendous amount of sand there, and the surfing was apparently wonderful. 
And we were standing there, and he had been showing me around. We were watching surfers, and I asked him, just sort of passingly, do you surf? And he stopped, and he kind of gave me a wry smile, and he said, no, no, not anymore. Which just begged the question, why not anymore? He said, well, there was a day where I was, I got up, and, and I had a lot of, you know, there was things going on that day, and I decided that I, I really needed to, to kind of relax and calm down, and surfing was always a good way for me to do that. So I got up early in the morning, and I went out, and I was surfing, and I lost track of time. It was just such a relaxing thing, and it's so peaceful when you're out there doing it. I just totally lost track of time, and as it turns out, I, I showed up about 40 minutes late to my wedding, and uh, I was like, no way. And he was like, yeah. And so my wife doesn't let me surf anymore. And... Uh, no matter what you think of their response to that, I guarantee you that every time he sees a surfer, he is reminded of the fact that he is to cherish his wife more than that. He is always reminded, is always on the tip of his mind. Whenever he goes down to the coast and he sees somebody out there riding a board, he knows, I am to love my wife. It is a reminder to him to never forget. Memorials have that. And there is clearly evidence here that God considers this a major act. Specifically, because the Red Sea is so overwhelming, you can almost hear stories of kids asking about this, saying, Dad, did you guys actually cross? Did you see the water stop up? Yeah, I saw it. It was really awesome. I bet you it would be more awesome if you were there at the Red Sea, right? It's like one of those stories where you've got a pretty good story, and there's always that one person that has to top you with every single story that you've ever had. God doesn't want this particular story to be passed over. He doesn't want this to simply lie in the shadow of the Red Sea. He wants his people to always remember that I wasn't just with Moses and I wasn't just with them. I am also with you. You are always to remember this and pass it down. There is proof in the memorial. And finally, there is also proof of renewal. There is proof of renewal. In chapter 5, we'll begin reading in verse 2. At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, Make flint knives and circumcise the sons of Israel a second time. So Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the sons of Israel at Gilbeath Haraloth. And this is the reason why Joshua circumcised them. All the males of the people who came out of Egypt, all the men of war, had died in the wilderness on the way after they had come out of Egypt. Through all, though all the people who came out had been circumcised, Yet all the people who were born on the way in the wilderness after they had come out of Egypt had not been circumcised. For the people of Israel walked 40 years in the wilderness until all the nation, the men of war who came out of Egypt, perished because they did not obey the voice of the Lord. The Lord swore to them that he would not let them see the land that the Lord had sworn to their fathers to give us, a land flowing with milk and honey. So it was their children whom he raised up in their place that Joshua circumcised. For they were uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised on the way. And when the, whole, when the circumcising of the whole nation was finished, they remained in their places in the camp until they were healed. And the Lord said to Joshua, Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. And so the name of that place is called Gilgal to this day. While the people of Israel were encamped at Gilgal, they kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month in the evening on the plains of Jericho. And the day after the Passover, on that very day, they ate the produce of the land, unleavened cakes and parched grain. 
and the manna ceased the day after they ate of the produce of the land. And there was no longer any manna for the people of Israel, but they ate the fruit of the land of Canaan that year. There is a great comparison and contrasting between the generation of men who landed here on the plains of Jericho, between them and the people who came up out of Egypt. Time and time again, Joshua, the book of Joshua, comes back to this to point it out. Those men were circumcised. When they came out of Egypt, they were circumcised. You were not circumcised. Those men died in the wilderness. They perished there. You are alive here today. They were disobedient because they refused to take the land. They refused to go to war. You have been obedient and you will go to war. They were more Egyptian than Israelite. One of the reasons why they struggled so mightily with understanding the very nature of God was because they were used to the nature of their gods in Egypt. They thought that this God might just be as fickle. They didn't know his faithfulness, his goodness, his kindness, the truthfulness to his word that he exhibited that those gods didn't. But you, you have the reproach of Egypt rolled away from you. That stink of Egypt that remained on your fathers is no longer on you. Your fathers ate manna because they had to go through the wilderness for 40 years. And while I provided it for them, it was necessary. You no longer have that because I have given you the land. And you get to eat from the land. In this, he is both connecting them back to the story of Egypt and he's connecting them back to Abraham. He is circumcising them the same way that Abraham and his sons were to be circumcised. He is connecting them back in the Passover to taking them out of Egypt. He is renewing himself with them, saying, you are God's people. God's people keep the Passover. God's people are circumcised. This is what happens to God's people. While you are not your fathers, you are God's. You are with him and he is with you. There is proof of that even in the renewal of the covenant here before they take any land at all. Now all of that is well and good. All of that is important. There's no doubt that we are to read Scripture in light of what the author meant to say. And I think that that's part and parcel of what the author is getting at. God is showing time and time again that he is with the people and that he is with their leader, Joshua. But that goes very far in explaining to the Jews the importance of this. But seeing this, most of us are not Jewish people. And most of us are not terribly concerned about the taking of Israel. The question becomes, what is the import of this for us? Paul, when he read Scripture, both in showing us how he used Scripture and in 1 Corinthians, explicitly says these things were not written for them. They're not written for Jews. They're written for us. They're written for the church. So what does this mean to us? What good can we take out of this? Well, certainly the miracles that were done were there to support Joshua as the leader of the people of God, to show that God was with Joshua. And we know that Jesus is Joshua. It's literally his name and figuratively the one that he replaces. He is the better Moses and the better Joshua. And so we would be right to assume 
that the miracles do the same thing for Jesus as they did for Joshua. Many times when we read the New Testament, we read those miracles simply as signs of Jesus' divinity, and we are right to do so. You'll notice that Joshua's miracles and Moses' miracles sound much different than Jesus. Moses is told to do things. Joshua is instructed to do them. Jesus does them out of his own good pleasure. He does not have to ask for permission to do things. He is given permission to heal people. God does not tell him to go out and still storms. He doesn't tell him to go and walk on water. Jesus does it of his own accord. He is fundamentally different than Joshua. But don't think for a second that the miracles do not prove exactly the same thing for Jesus that they do for Joshua. The miracles that Jesus does, the miracles that he manifests, show very, very much that God is with him. Luke 7 Beginning in verse 18, John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? In that hour, he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits. On many whom were blind, he bestowed sight. And he answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Jesus says, you bet. I am the one who is, because the miracles demonstrate that God is with me. But to what end? The miracles were with Joshua, because Joshua was to take over the land. Joshua was to conquer the land that was there. Indeed, this isn't out of the disciples' understanding as well. Sure, the miracles show that God is with Jesus. Jesus says this in a number of ways. In the passage where they say, you are only casting out demons by Beelzebul. In Matthew 12, Jesus turns around and says, well, listen, if that is the case, then how do your disciples cast out spirits? And what's more, if I'm casting them out because a house divided cannot stand, you know that God is working through me. To what end, though? It's not for nothing that even after the resurrection, the disciples still have these kind of questions. Why have you come? What are you here to do? In Acts 1, 4 through 6, while the disciples were staying, while he was staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So, when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? You're Joshua. Are you, have you come to give us back the land? His answer to that is no, but you will be my witnesses in Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost ends of the world. Last week we read from Psalm 2. When we read from Psalm 2 last week, it was to emphasize the fact that it wasn't so much the character of the man that mattered as much as it was the God who worked in him. It didn't matter that Joshua was an upstanding character. God didn't need somebody who was great. God needed himself to appoint that man to greatness. And so they took stand against God and his anointed. And when God laughed, he simply says, I have set my king on Zion. The second half of that psalm will help us understand what Jesus has come to do. We'll begin in verse 7. 
Psalm 2 reads, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage, the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise and be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. But blessed are all who take refuge in him. He says, I have not just given the land of Israel to my king. As long as there are people out there who blaspheme my name, you need to know that I am setting on Zion my king. And unless you come to him, O nations, and you bow down before him, he will destroy you. There's no doubt, no doubt that the Gospels know this. There's no doubt that Satan knows this. This is why when Jesus shows up, one of the first things that Satan tempts him with is all of the nations. Matthew 4, again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Listen, that was under something that we call temptations for Jesus. If Satan doesn't have a reason to offer that, if it's not a good, legitimate offer, it's not a temptation. The fact is that Adam has abdicated his throne to Satan. It is Satan's to offer. He is the Lord of the world. And so it is a real offer. And it is what Jesus was sent to do. But not that way. The way Jesus would win the nations is by dying on the cross in obedience to all that the Father has called him to do. And that is again, as we come back to the Great Commission one last time, why Jesus stands up before them and says, all authority has been given to me. I am not the king of Israel. All authority has been given to me. I am the king of kings and the Lord of lords. I rule over all of the earth and therefore you are to go into the land not into Israel. Like Joshua, Jesus leads his people into the lands that they will conquer. And for us, it is into all of the nations. And you will make disciples of all of the nations, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded to you, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit. Rahab is no longer an oddity. When we go into the land, no longer is the faith of the Canaanites an oddity where there is only destruction happening, but rather just as the faith being exemplified by Rahab is shown in its greatness over the faithlessness of what happened to the Israelites before. So now the fact that Christ is sending us into the land and reaping the faith of the Gentiles is part of the greatness of what Christ has called us to do. We do not fight with swords but rather with the word of God. We do not fight with chariots, but rather with the spirit of God. We do not use military strategy, but rather we preach the gospel. We don't go out with cunning, but rather with wisdom and kindness. We don't count on physical strength in battle, but we count on spiritual discipline. We do not train our bodies, but we encourage the body of believers. We do not go out with war chants, 
but with righteous prayers. We do not go out with songs about our victories and our strength, but we proclaim the strength of him in song and psalm who rose again. We do not use shields for our defense, but we use the shield of faith to defend us from the arrows of the evil one. We go out and we win victory over the nations by proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. And what is more, even better than what happened in Joshua's day, Christ has given us reminders, memorials, that God is indeed with us. Not only has Christ said, I will be with you until the end of the age, he does for us exactly the same things that are done for the people of Israel. The people of Israel could not pass through the water, for they were not strong enough to pass through death, but that is not what we get. We don't have a parting of the baptismal waters when we are placed in because we can pass through death, because we have been made strong in the resurrection of Christ. And so we are placed into water where we cannot live, because like Christ, even if we die, we raise again. We have been given the memorial of Passover, only now it is in the Lord's Supper where he sustains us, where he gives us his grace, his body, and his blood to give us life forevermore. We are reminded that in both of these things, that he has circumcised us with a circumcision without hands, a circumcision of the heart that we might live before him. All of these memorials are given to us so that we would know firmly and without doubt that God is for us. So therefore, church, it is our calling, our duty, and our glory to go out and win for Christ the inheritance for which he died. That of the nations of this world. Only, we are not to go out simply hoping for victory. Rather, we go out knowing Christ is with us until the end of the age as the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the Lion of Judah, the Son of God, the Messiah King resurrected to eternal life. We go out assured of victory, not trepid, not timid, but we go out knowing full well that what Christ has said will happen. We go out assured of victory. We go out already conquerors. So go in faith and assurance, proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Be strong and courageous, friends, for he will never forsake you, nor will he ever leave you. He will be with you until the end of the age. Let us pray. Father, your goodness to us knows no bounds. The kindness that you have paid to us in not leaving us dead, but giving us faith like Rahab as we have prostituted ourselves before other gods, before other desires, before other things that we have longed for with our hearts instead of you. You have not let those things keep us from you. You have called us by your gospel to you. We are a prize for Christ. For the good work that he has done, you have bestowed upon him the name that is above every name. And all people will come to see him as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And Father, you have been gracious not only to call us, but then to give us the charge to go out into the nations. May we do it, Father, with strength and courage, 
boldly proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ so that his name might be famous on the earth for the good of your people, for the glory of the name of Jesus Christ. May this be true of us, that we are those who proclaim the gospel of God. There is nothing else that matters for us but that in our lives, Jesus Christ be glorified and magnified even unto the ends of the earth. Our lives are yours. Let us give them then for that which you have called us. In Jesus' name, amen.